0: The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meaning House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, our topic is the Presbyterian Historical Society, uh, which is located in Philadelphia, and my guest is the Executive Director, Beth Hessel. Uh, today, we are going to be uh, talking about the history of the Presbyterian Church uh, in Scotland and coming over to the United States, or actually it was uh, North America at the time, not yet the United States. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, what distinguished the early Presbyterian people from other churches. Uh, Calvinist people around uh, the world. We're also going to be talking about uh, the history of the Presbyterian Historical Society and what types of records they have, plus their museum. So uh, we've got a lot to cover today. Um, and I wanted to uh, point out that I have been to the Presbyterian Historical Society for research. It has a number of New York Presbyterian church records uh, and I always like to look at the originals. Uh, so uh, many of the original records are uh, in the archives at the Presbyterian Historical Society, and it's a wonderful resource. Um, so, so Beth, um, pleased to have you uh, talking about the Presbyterian Historical Society today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm
1: delighted to be here talking with you. <laughs> it's, it's good to
0: have you. Uh, so as I ask all of my guests, what's your background? Where were you born, raised, your education, your careers?
1: Um, I uh, I come from Northern California, from Sonoma County, what we uh, there like to call God's country. Um, Though I've I've lived enough other places in the United States to learn that there are many places that can um, receive that moniker. Uh, I received degrees in history. That has been my my life's passion, Um, first from the University of California in Davis. Uh, Then I came out and did a master's in U.S. women's history from SUNY Binghamton, Um, I also have a degree, a Master's of Divinity degree from San Francisco Theological Seminary, which is in Marin County in California, and a Ph.D. in History from Texas Christian University. Uh, Around getting those various degrees, I've worked in the software industry and also uh, taught in several universities and colleges and served as a pastor for about 15 years in uh, both Presbyterian and Disciples of Christ congregations around the U.S. I mean,
0: it sounds like a perfect fit for the Presbyterian Historical Society.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it is a pretty good fit. I, I'm not an archivist. I'm the, I'm the first in the modern era, at least, um, executive director who is not an archivist. So I rely on my archivist to know all there is to know about collecting and preserving. All right. And so how did you get interested in history? You know that's a great question. I, I think I came about it actually through literature. Um, as as a little girl, I remember uh, being very young, and my mom starting to read to me from Louisa May Alcott's Little Women series and the Little House on the Prairie series, um, and I, I got fascinated by the life of women in the 19th century and wanted to learn everything I could about. Um, adventurous and daring women and what it was like to live in the 19th century and so um, by the time I was about eight years old I was reading biographies of people like Josephine Bonaparte and Clara Barton and asking my mom to assign me book reports um, (laughs) so I could I could learn more about history. Um, Even earlier than that I remember my my great-grandmother, my mom's grandmother, we called her Grandma Ducky because she used to make us a stuffed animals, ducks out of anything she could find, old hosiery or, or uh, toweling or whatever she could find. Um, and she died in her 90s when I was three or four years old, and she used to tell fascinating stories about her own family and, and their history, and, um, and that also sparked an interest in history for me.
0: Okay. And then did you take off with uh, the genealogy part of, of history from your uh, great-grandmother?
1: Uh, I have done a little bit. I've relied on my, my family to do most of the genealogy and hope someday uh, when I retire that I will be able to take it up more, more fully. But um, my, that maternal great-grandmother, her, her, her son, my mom's dad, was a journalist with the Associated Press. And he, uh, he did these wonderful interviews with both his mother and his grandmother uh, about our family's history from um, traveling across the United States on covered wagon and being uh, 49ers, in the gold rush and losing all that, that, that gold that they, they found, and um, fascinating history of, of, of our family as, as part of the growth of the United States. And I've, I always found um, that history very fascinating, much more fascinating than my father's side of the family, which were all stalwart German pastors and missionaries, and a little, little more boring that side of the <laughs> genealogy. Okay,
0: all right. And we'll talk a little bit more about your family history at the end of the show. Uh, So let's talk about the history of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, In a nutshell, uh, uh, just kind of the highlights, uh, how did it start? Um, Who is there considered to be a founder of Presbyterianism?
1: Yeah, so first I think the important thing to understand is that um, Presbyterianism, that term comes from the Latin uh, root presbyter, which means elder. And so the form of Presbyterian uh, church refers to as governance, um, which is the form of a representative form of governance, governance ruled by both the pastor and the laity or ordained elders in the church. Um, and, and this form of representative governance was very important in the Reformation and really um, really honed to perfection by John Calvin, who we consider the, the father of Presbyterianism. Um, uh, Calvin was uh, a French reformer, and he uh, he was uh, he had a tr- a transformation um, conversion to the Reformation at a very young age while he was uh, training for both ministry and then the law in France. And he went on to become the lead pastor in Geneva, which was a reformed city. And he helped it become um, become a a a Protestant uh, city. Um, ruled uh, at all levels, at the church and at the governance, uh, the, 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 the secular level, by, um, by basically Calvinist model of, of governance, church model of governance. Um, and his, his writings in 1536, he produced the first, uh, his first uh, Institutes of, of Christian uh, Doctrine. Uh, he continued to revise that throughout his life. The final edition was, was published in 1558. And uh, his writings and his work greatly influenced uh, other reformers throughout Europe. And one of them was John Knox, who came from, um, from Scotland. And he had been studying in Glasgow, got involved in a battle between the Scots and the French, was captured and forced to row on a galley for 19 months. After that, he served in England for a little bit, then became part of the Marian exiles in Geneva. Um, And there he came under uh, Calvin's influence. He helped to do the Geneva Bible translation and also wrote his um, rather infamous, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, which was published in 1558 and was a uh, scurrilous uh, argument against female rulers and against Roman Catholicism who was invited to return to Scotland um, in 1559, at which time the Scottish Parliament abolished Roman Catholicism and established the Presbyterian Church as the uh, state church in 1560, and Knox became the the leader of the Presbyterian Church in in Scotland. Um, And and I think that's how Scott, Scott The the Scottish Presbyterian Church really has become the most famous form of of Presbyterianism that we we think of. And so many of our um, ancestors here came from Scotland or or the Scots-Irish also. Um, So we we think of Knox often as our um, honorary father of of Presbyterianism. Okay. I I have a lot of follow-up questions. Uh,
0: So going back. (laughs) <laughs> to the, the governance in, in terms of the representation, how is that different the Presbyterian form compared to uh, say the congregational or the reformed in, in, when congregational thinking the Puritans, which is a lot of different uh, variety of Puritans in England at that time?
1: The big difference um, between the congregational and the uh, congregational form and the Presbyterian form is is that the Presbyterians fairly quickly created um, what they first called consistories or synods um, and that would be um, moving from the congregational level up to higher levels of, of regional um, of, of, of governance, of governing bodies. Um, in congregation the congregational system, the governance, um, all the governance remains in the congregational level. Um, and the form of discipline and, and other modes of governance can happen in the Presbyterian church above the congregational level that can inform what happens in the congregation.
0: Okay, so there's a, a different level of hierarchy within the Presbyterian movement. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. And then um, you talked about the Geneva Bible. That, that's something that when I'm researching my Puritans uh, who are in England, uh, that was something that I learned about them prior to the uh, King James Version. So what, what's the Geneva Bible?
1: It was um, a translation of the Bible um, that, ha- um, that preceded the King James Bible by about 51 years um, and it, it was very important because it was um, used by many of those English dissenters. It was, was the first opportunity really to have um, the Bible mass produced and read in, in, in the English version um, and available for the average person uh, to read. It, was, it wasn't in the Vulgate, it wasn't in Latin, um, so, so people could actually access the Bible. Um, and, and, and read it for themselves. And this was an important part of the Reformation, this belief that um, the laity needed to be educated, needed to be able to read, and needed to have access to the word of God, to scripture, without having it mediated um, to them by priests.
0: Okay, all right. And then, and then a question about John Knox. Uh, in my research in uh, Derbyshire, England, I uh found one of his disciples uh in Derbyshire so it it seems like the uh, presbyterian influence is is expanding. Uh can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure, well the presbyterians they uh you know they they were in England also at the same time that they were in Scotland and they were in Geneva um they were just much stronger stronger in Scotland, in part because they were an established church. And, and Scotland, um, if you remember, had the <laughs> they 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 were having that continual power struggle against England, um, and 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 trying to to uh, defy the undue influence of of, of the English crown against um, what was happening inside Scotland. Um, in England, you had the um, you had the English during the English Civil War. Of course, you had um, the Puritan revolution under Cromwell um, and that Puritan revolution included a variety of the Puritans were, had, had a variety of beliefs there were Congregationalists um, there were, there were uh, Presbyterians among those Puritans in um, their understandings their theological understandings their, um, their, their understandings of church polity um, how a church should be ordered so it wouldn't be surprising to find somebody who Followed Knox as opposed to maybe Calvin or Zwingli or, or some other um, Protestant uh, reformer in in England at that time.
0: Okay, all right, and and uh, this period in England in the in the 1500s, early 1600s. Uh, Uh, In in my my research, I'm just kind of adding on here. It says people were trying on all sorts of different uh, dissenting philosophies. Uh, So it's a really fascinating period. Um, And you also talked also about John Knox and his time in Geneva. And you mentioned the Marian, I'm not sure if you used the word exiles. Tell us about Queen Mary and how, how important she was in what was going on at that time.
1: Well, I don't claim to be a specialist in this period, so <laughs> you can help correct me any mistakes I make. Um, but <laughs> um, you know, Mary Mary Stuart was was a Catholic. She was a staunch Catholic, um, and she had exiled to France for a while, and then she came back and came into rule. When she came back back to power in Scotland, when when uh, John Knox um, was back as 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 a head of the Presbyterian. Um, Church in Scotland, he he fought against her strongly, um, but she helped persecute um, those uh, who opposed Catholicism in Scotland, and that was one of the reasons why he needed to, uh, he and many others uh, needed to leave the country um, during this period in time. Okay, all right, and then um,
0: before we move uh, to bringing Presbyterianism over to North America, what? What besides the the government's governance uh, organization distinguished the early Presbyterians from other Calvinist churches like the Congregationalists and the Reformed? One of the
1: huge uh, one of the huge differences was Calvin's emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Um, they all believed in as Luther's uh, emphasis, uh, Martin Luther's emphasis, had been on the grace of God over. Um, which was pushing him back against this um, sort of belief that we could merit salvation that had been growing uh, growing in the, in the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, um, his, his belief that it was only through God's grace that we could be saved. Um, and, and, and Calvin really emphasized the sovereignty of God, that, that we existed and all that we had and all that we were um, was through God's sovereignty. Um, And through this arose the belief in predestination. And and Calvin helped create this, created this understanding of predestination or the idea that God had already determined who was elected or who was saved ahead of time. So you already, by the time you were born, it was already decided if you were saved or not. Um, As a way, uh, he saw it as a way to ease the fears of, of, of the believers. Um, that it wasn't—it wasn't in our hands. There was nothing we could do. We just had to trust in God and what, in God's goodness that we were saved. Um, but it helped create a bit of a dilemma because if some people were predestined to be saved, that means others were probably predestined to be damned, um, and this created a lot of issues. in in the church and arguments with with, uh, folks of other other reformed bodies um, over time about predestination. Uh, And that has really stood out. If you ask somebody what Presbyterians believe, you often get, oh, they believe in predestination or double predestination. Okay, all right. And then
0: let's take the Presbyterians from from Scotland uh, and bring them to North America. How, How did that happen? When did it happen?
1: Well, Presbyterians, uh, a- along with other Calvinists, uh, really you say Calvinists as a whole were the the predominant um, colonizers of North America um, in the in the in the 17th century and early 18th century, um, and and Presbyterians were among those Calvinists. By the 1690s, uh, Presbyterians were in the southern colonies in Norfolk, Virginia, and Maryland and Delaware. Um, they were uh, Presbyterians in New England, but in New England it was primarily Congregationalists, so some of those Congregationalists were Presbyterian in sympathy. Um, But most Presbyterians settled in the middle colonies, um, starting Long Island in the 1640s, um, and they settled in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Um, Those were the colonies where they found that the government authorities uh, showed the most toleration for them. Um, If we remember, most of the colonies were created as, as royal colonies, um they all had their own particular uh religious uh, government that was set up they were either they may be an anglican government they might be as in pennsylvania a quaker a quaker sponsored church government church state state <laughs> church colony state colony sorry um And so they had to look for the places where they would be the most welcome. And so the Middle Colonies seemed to be the best places for them to settle. Um, They came not just from Scotland, though many came from Scotland. Many came from, were Scots-Irish, who came from Ireland. Many came from England. Um, They also came from other parts um, in Europe who were Calvinist by persuasion. Um, And some of them were not Presbyterian, but some also became Presbyterian when they they came to North America. and they left, like, like other colonists, for many reasons. Um, some of them left for economic reasons. This was a time, in the, particularly in the beginning of the 1630s, we had the Great Migration um, from, from, the, from England and, and, and Scotland, uh, where there was great economic instability. So many of these people came hoping for more economic possibilities. But most scholars now really believe that the majority of Presbyterians and Congregationalists and other Puritans came for religious reasons. That they really believed that they were coming um, because they were following God's will. That their hope was that they could create a a religious uh, world here um, where they would be able to continue to hold England uh, to the fire and hopefully be able to transform England eventually um, also. While they okay. were still being successful here.
0: So, so in the early years, as we've got the colonists coming to uh, North America, uh, we've we've got the, the Puritan stronghold in New England. Uh, we've got a mixed bag in the Middle Colonies uh, with the Anglicans uh, and the, the Quakers. Uh, you know, are are we going to be able to to distinguish? our ancestors are particularly Presbyterian or are they they kind of blending in with what was going on wherever they landed?
1: Usually they would create their own congregations. Occasionally you would find that they they might, there might be a congregation that maybe they were, they may be in in, in the middle colonies, or or sorry, in uh, in New England, there might be a Congregationalist, but they might have Presbyterians within that, that Congregationalist congregation um but usually presbyterians if there were enough of them they would they would form together um and create and create a congregation so that they would be identified as presbyterians
0: and do you know what year i, I know you uh uh you said i'm asking some questions off the cuff here um do you know what year presbyterianism officially was was uh codified or, you know, that that an organization was formed somewhere in North America?
1: Well, we had the early churches, but when we think of the Presbyterian organization as going beyond individual churches, in 1701, the first presbytery was created, which is the next, uh, the next level of governing body above a congregation, uh, and this was the Presbytery of Philadelphia. And so okay. it was created in 1701 with seven seven pastors. So it was a small presbytery.
0: Okay. And then were those pastors all from Pennsylvania?
1: No. Well, they were they were largely pastoring in in the Philadelphia region. So that was why they had the presbytery there. They were all, all largely pastoring in the Philadelphia region, and um, but it grew quickly by 1717. So this this coming year. Um, the Presbytery of Philadelphia is getting ready to celebrate what it considers its 300th anniversary because in 1717 the Synod of Philadelphia was created Um, and under the Synod it branched out to have four um, four different Presbyteries and those included the Presbytery of Philadelphia of New Castle, which would be Delaware at the the end of of Long Island and there was supposed to be the the Presbytery of Snow Hill, but it was actually never organized. All right. All right. So this show
0: is perfect timing to celebrate the 300th anniversary.
1: It is. It is. It's very exciting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. All right. So then
1: you know, were
0: presbyterians on a whole accepted into the societies wherever they went. You know, I know like for example, Quakers, you know, they they were not. Uh there was a very strong feeling especially uh in in uh the Puritan New England and also New York. Uh that uh, under the Dutch, that, that they were not welcomed so much. Uh, was that an experience
1: that, that Presbyterians had as well? Well, you know, that, that's interesting. Um, uh, several, several, um, several scholars have done some interesting work. One of them is Janice Knight, who wrote this book called Orthodoxies in Massachusetts. Um, and she argues that, that we've long looked at, at these early settlements and, and, and suggested that there was just one, they were, all had the same beliefs, they all, they all believed the same thing, As she said there really were, uh, there was a diversity of beliefs, um, and, uh, and argues that um, when, when the Puritans, which included Congregationalists and Presbyterians, when they were all together in England, they were bonded together, under the common threat of Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism, but when they arrived here in the colonies, they no longer had that external threat facing them in the same way, and so they were able to start fighting against each other, um, and be aware of their many different theological understandings. Um, so, so we find that in the colonies that you get more um, more infighting among among individuals, right? We have, uh, you know, we we have have that's one reason why we have different colonies with different different state churches, um, because people have different ways of believing and understanding, and they can't get along so well. Um, However, England had passed the Toleration Act in 1689, which supposedly should count here in in the colonies. Um, But we had an example. Francis McCamey was one of the earliest pastors who came over from Ireland, um, and he had been ordained in Ireland um, by the Presbytery of Lagan, and um, was sent as a missionary first to the Barbados, and then to the the Eastern Shore of of North America. Um, And when he came here, he he got a license from the Presbytery of Philadelphia to preach. Um, And after a a meeting, he he traveled to New York. And he was forbidden to preach in a church by the Lord Cornberry, who was the governor of the colony, and um, a relative of Queen Anne. And he argued that he had every right to preach because he had a license, but Cornberry argued that that Toleration Act of 1689 didn't apply to the colonies. Uh, So McCamey decided that he would preach in a church building and um, opened the windows. Uh, He wanted to, actually he wanted to a private house and he opened the windows and the doors um, so that he could preach and really be heard preaching. Um, And he was arrested for this act of civil disobedience. Uh, And in a court, uh, he argued against Cornberry. He obtained a writ of ha- habeas corpus, and he insisted that the, govern, govern, um, the governor produce and show the court in writing uh, the law that sanctioned um, his arrest. And the governor wasn't able to do so, so McCamey won this um, this battle, though he did still spend uh, 46 days in jail and had to pay the expenses of his custody in his trial. Um, but this was an example of, of the ways that, that occasionally Uh, Presbyterians were a little outspoken in in standing up for their religious liberty and might um, have to pay the prices in defending it.
0: Very interesting. On on that note, we are going to take a break. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. back this is the forget me not hour your ancestors want their stories to be told as you're listening on blog talk radio on your computer you're going to see a follow button Uh, if you press that you'll receive an email letting you know that the show is going on the air what the topic is and who the guest is Uh, you'll also see some social media buttons Uh, please share the forget me not hour with your friends and family on social media Um, also take advantage of the forget me not hour archives Uh, There are, I think we're in our sixth year, uh, every, or or twice a month, and there are some wonderful shows that are timeless topics. Uh, Please take advantage of the archives. And you can uh, take the Forget Me Not hour on the go. Uh, You can uh, get it on iTunes under Jane E. Wilcox. And uh, again, take advantage of, of all of the past shows. Today, we are talking about the Presbyterian Historical Society. Actually, we're getting there. We're talking about Presbyterianism right now. And my guest is Beth Hessel, who is the executive director. So, Beth, my, my next question, uh, you may actually have already addressed this, and and this may be a, a question coming from my misunderstanding. Uh, so, on Long Island, I have ancestors, uh, the, the young's uh, father and son, I think Christopher and John were ministers who uh, founded South Old. And my understanding is that they came down from New England and they were originally Congregationalists. And then at some point in the early 1700s, I think the date was 1715, I I found something that indicated that these Long Island churches, uh, also uh, Southampton, uh, changed to Presbyterianism. Is is this uh, correct or have I... Do I have a misunderstanding, and I'm wondering if this happened elsewhere as well?
1: I'm thinking that's a misunderstanding because we do um count the Southampton Church as the oldest Presbyterian Church in America um, organized in sixteen forty as a Presbyterian Church Okay, all right, and then do, do you have Southold in your list as well do
0: um
1: that i that i that i that I don't know, but I can always look it up and find out for you.
0: Okay. All right. Because uh, because that's the as I said, the Youngs were the uh, founding ministers of the the church at Southhold. Um, so okay, it,
1: have you uh, because have we you do? See- I mean, we do. Um, we we do know that both Southhold and Southampton, Southampton in 1640 and Southhold in the 1640s was was organized as a Presbyterian church. I wonder. Okay. Um, possibly went Congregationalist for a little while and then came back as Presbyterian. Okay, all right. Um, And I was wondering if that had
0: happened elsewhere as well. Um, And it may be that something happened in 1715 to organize the the Presbyterian churches on Long Island, uh, potentially.
1: That may have been. It may have been um, part of the Presbytery. Yes, yes, as you
0: were talking about the 1701 date and then what was happening in Philadelphia. So are there offshoots? Uh, of the Presbyterian Church?
1: There are, you know, in fact, we have on our website, um, which, is, um, which is history.peaceusa.org, we have a fantastic little uh, family tree of the Presbyterian Church, which is wonderfully convoluted. <laughs> We've had so many schisms and breakoffs and people coming back together again and reuniting. Um, two of the most important offshoots of the Presbyterian Church, though, which still continue as, as very vibrant denominations today, occurred d- during the Second Great Awakening um, in the early 19th century. Um, one was the Disciples of Christ, which grew out of the Cane Ridge Revival in 1801. Um, and uh, Alexander Campbell, who was a Scottish Presbyterian, helped create the Disciples of Christ uh, congregations. They considered themselves restorationists or trying to get as close to the New Testament church as possible. Um, their, their belief was that um, they kind of followed this, this theory of where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where it's silent, we are silent. Um, and, and, and they continue today as, as a very vibrant, mostly in the, the Midwest and the, 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 the Southwest, on the southeast are where they are strongest, but um, they are a strong denomination that has its roots in the Presbyterian Church. Um, they are Congregationalist in their, um, in their their mode, in their governance. Um, they don't believe in infant baptism as Presbyterians do, and they do have some other beliefs, um, but they, they come out of the Presbyterian Church. Um, the other is the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, um, and it comes out of 18, uh, emerged in 1810. Um, a group was really questioning how, how well the, the Presbyterian Church and some of its its theology and models of governance fit the uh, the church as expanded on, as it expanded onto the frontier. One of its concerns was was this uh, the, the Doctrine of election, and they felt that this doctrine of election and predestination was a little too fatalistic for people who were living on the frontier. Um, and also the strict ordination standards, the belief that, that clergy needed to have a high level of education, needed to have been to seminary, felt it was making it really difficult to find ministers who could minister on the frontier. Um, so the uh, one of the presbyteries of Transylvania and Cumberland had ordained an um, indiv- individual named Finnish Ewing, who was not um, properly trained to Presbyterian standards, and the Synod of Kentucky censured these presbyteries. In response, Ewing and two other man- men, Samuel McAdoo and Samuel King formed another presbytery, the Presbytery of the Cumberland in 1810, which um, became the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And it also continues to this day as a vibrant um, denomination. And we hold many of the records of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in our, uh, in our archives as well. Okay, actually, I was just going to
0: ask, do you hold the, these records from the offshoots?
1: Not of the Disciples of Christ. For the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, we hold many of their records. Um, I, don't, I can't tell you offhand right now up to what year, but they, they do have their own um, archives now where they hold many of their records, but we, we do hold a, a number of them. Um, we hold records from a number of other denominations too uh, at various points. Okay, all right. And then, is, before we move to the uh, Presbyterian
0: Historical Society itself, is there anything else you would like to add about the history of Presbyterianism? Um,
1: I can't think of anything offhand. I, there's, there's so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sure. We're, uh, and actually, we're,
1: we're, uh, I was going to yes. say,
0: can you recommend a good book uh, for people who want to explore more about the history of Presbyterianism?
1: Well, the, the standard, um, the standard, which is a good quick read, would be James Smiley's *A Brief History of the Presbyterians*, um, which was published by Geneva Press in uh, 1996, and that gives a, a great overview. Um, another more recent one, which is, is really great, is by Brad Longfield. It's called Presbyterians and American Culture. And I think this one is a fantastic look at how Presbyterianism has really seeped into um, US, U.S. culture and history and how it has shaped and been shaped by um, the the last 300 years of our nation's history.
0: Okay. All right, but great. Brad after. I was going to say, after the show, I'll send you an email, and I'll get the titles. You mentioned Janice uh, Nye as well, and I'll get the titles of these books, and I'll post this on the blog talk page so people have these as references. Fantastic. Okay. So then the history of the Presbyterian Historical Society. When when you mentioned seventeen oh one and the, the Presbytery was, was organizing, I thought, Oh, that's how how it uh the historical society came to be in Philadelphia. Um, so who who founded the Historical Society? Uh and and what
1: it was actually founded in 1852 by a couple of gentlemen. One was Cortland Van Rensselaer, um, who was uh, a pastor in the Presbyterian Church, and another was uh, was the collector Samuel Agnew. Um, and they they realized that uh, as the church continued to expand, that many of the ways that the church was bonded um, was by the the um, sharing of uh, published sermons and treatises and pamphlets and journals. And so they wanted to make sure that that these Um, various manuscripts and articles were all collected and preserved and made accessible, not only for current generations, but for future generations. So they created a voluntary and private society um, to collect these materials in 1852. And it was always based in Philadelphia, um, which also was the home base of the Presbyterian Church in the USA for uh, several centuries. Um, So by the 1860s, the society had actually accumulated It was amazing, more than 3,000 volumes, um, 8,000 pamphlets, 150 volumes of newspaper, um, some 300 portraits, and a lot of manuscripts. And and in 1880, it moved into a location on Race Street in Philadelphia. And in the 1890s, it accepted an invitation from the denomination to move into its new building, um, the Witherspoon office building, which is on Walnut Street in Philadelphia. And that's where the Society was located until we moved into our current space in 1967, 50 years ago, which was built um, specifically for the Society. Okay. We remained a private society until 1925 when the Office of uh, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA made the Society the official PCUSA USA Department of Historical Research. Um, and this was important, it enabled the Society to um, make secure reliable funding uh, for its. For its work um, by doing so
0: okay and then do you collect material records from throughout
1: the United States we do this is really what makes us different from all the other denominational archives most most of the other denominational archives have um, have a central archive and then regional depositories where they collect uh, regional congregational or, or pastoral or, um, Records and we collect all of our records here in one location. So we have the records of congregations from across the United States, we have the biographical personnel records of pastors, we have missionary records, Um, we have denominational national agency level records, um, synod records, presbytery records, all in one location, which is fantastic for researchers.
0: Okay, and then how do the individual uh, congregation records end up in your holdings do you do you actively go out to uh the different churches and say you know we'd like your records do they voluntarily give you records how, how does all that happen
1: it's a mixture of, of of all those things jane it's it's a challenge many congregations don't want to let go of their records um just like many families don't want to let go of their family's records um, and believe they they want to hold them forever but as we know Um, It's hard for us as individuals or a congregation to to adequately protect those records and make sure that they don't get injured by flood or fire or theft or some other natural disaster um, or unfortunate happening. So we encourage um, regularly uh, congregations to send us their records um, and we offer to digitize them for them so that congregations will have uh, a digital copy of their records. Uh, often, most often we get the records when a congregation either closes or when they leave and go, go and become part of another denomination because at that point those records become the property of the presbytery, the next governing level above, above them, and the presbytery will send us the records.
0: Okay. All right. And actually, and I was going to ask for the digitization. Are you actively digitizing your collection?
1: Yes, we are, we are. We started a digitization program about four years ago and um, we do both, we do private digitization orders um, for congregations and presbyteries and individuals and we also um, are doing an intentional program of digitizing records that we have here. Um, things that we consider um, are very delicate and need to be digitized in order to save them, Um, items that we feel are of greater interest to the public that we wanna get up on our digital website which is called Pearl after the missionary and author Pearl uh, Pearl Buck. Um, And uh, we look forward to continue to digitize more and more things as we go along to make more things available online for folks.
0: Okay, and then when you say material of greater interest, what types of things are, are you digitizing from that regard?
1: Right now, if you, look, if you were to go onto our site, onto Pearl, um, which you can access from our, our website, uh, history.peaceusa.org, you'll see that we have a lot of stuff on uh, missionaries. We have, we have photos. We have uh, uh, written records. We have diaries. We have audio We have visual. We have living histories of of individuals. We've done oral uh, video histories of of important leaders in the the, the denomination. Um, We have uh, photographs. Um, We have things from the Civil Rights Movement, um, Japanese American incarceration, which we're looking at 75 years ago um, this February that that happened during World War II. missionary leaders, uh, the women's rights movement, and, and other such movements that we think are of interest to to individuals. Okay. And
0: I will make sure that I put the link uh, for the uh, digital collection also
1: on the blog talk page. So it, it sounds like Pearl Buck was a Presbyterian. She was. She grew up as the child of Presbyterian missionaries in China and served as a missionary herself for a while, was also married to a missionary, and came to greatly uh, question the whole missionary movement. Um, but she's best known for, uh, for her, her novels, of course. But she also was a great challenger of, of how we did missions in the early 20th century. Oh, very interesting. So we okay. honored her by naming our, our digital website after her. <laughs> All right. All right.
0: Uh, so we are going to take another break. Uh, this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We'll be back on uh, January 4th, uh, the first Wednesday of the new year. Uh, the show is going to be the uh, researching the Iroquois Confederacy, and my guest is going to be Professor Lawrence Hauptmann. Uh He is a professor uh, emeritus of history at uh, SUNY New Paltz. Uh, he's written a book called An Oneida Indian in Foreign Waters, The Life of Chief Chapman Scanandoa. Uh and we're going to be talking about the history of the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about his book, and then we're going to be talking about what types of records uh, are were, can be used For researching the Iroquois Confederacy, Uh, so that will be at 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, Eastern Time, on January 4th, and then the third Wednesday of the month. uh, The topic is going to be Eastern Europe research, and my guest will be Lisa Alzo, who is uh, uh, the noted Eastern European expert uh, researching Eastern European ancestors. Uh, So. Uh, that will be at 10 o'clock Eastern time again on uh, January 18th. And then if you have any questions for uh, guests, if you have any topics uh, that you would like to see the forget me, not Hour uh, feature, uh, if you have any feedback, uh, please find me at Jane and you, you can reach me there. Uh, so today we are uh, talking about the Presbyterian historical society and Beth, uh, when we look at the individual Presbyterian congregations, uh, they're, they're keeping records. What are we going yes. to find in, in their record keeping? What, what types of records?
1: Well, the records that I think are especially uh, of interest to your listeners, the genealogists, are, are the records that help us locate individuals and tell their stories. Presbyterians love records. Um, <laughs> We've always taken records very seriously. Um, in a congregation, a session a session has to keep its minutes and every year those minutes are reviewed at the Presbytery level for accuracy and order. Um, so we, we make sure that everything's done decently and in an order. And so in those minutes you're going to find um, records of the, of the business conducted by a session, um, the annual meetings of the congregation records of any marriages, funerals, or baptisms that are conducted at the church, any ordinations and elections of elders um, and others who are elected to office in the church, um, such as elders or deacons or trustees. Um, if the church has a cemetery or a columbarium on its premises, uh, the church records would, would list uh, those who are, whose remains are, are interred there. Um, so we have all of those uh, lists that that would be and records that would be there in the church's records.
0: Okay. And in some cases, like the, uh, the reformed records, I find, uh, like confirmations, uh, a, a list of people and, and when they were confirmed. Uh, also, I think I've run across membership lists as well with Presbyterian records. So, so going back to the, um, confirmations, would we find something like that in Presbyterian records?
1: Yes, you will. So according to uh, Presbyterian theology, we become members of Christ's body at our baptism. So um, if you're baptized as an infant, your parents make those um, promises for membership on your behalf. Um, But at a certain age, usually in teenage years, um, most Presbyterian churches will hold a confirmation class, for example, and those um, young people will stand up and affirm confirm and affirm their faith before the session and the congregation. Um, so that will be recorded in the minutes. They also record anybody who comes to the church who's been baptized elsewhere and becomes a member of the church through affirmation of the faith faith, or, or through transfer of faith from another congregation. Um, so all of those records are kept there in the church. So you can also re- record a note. If someone... If someone transferred their, their membership from somewhere else, you'll be able to know where they transferred their membership from. So you can start doing your, um, your search and find out where people moved from.
0: Okay, and, and is that a, a, a good general rule for all records or are we going to find exceptions?
1: That's a good general rule for all, all, all records in the Presbyterian Church. They're pretty standardized um, on okay. the kind type of records that Presbyterians will keep.
0: Okay, all right.
1: And then did the congregations
0: also note uh, dismissals uh, going to other churches?
1: Yes. Yes, so that would have been noted as well. Um, Those are all things that were actions that were taken by a session. A session would have to approve um, dismissing a member to a different congregation. So so that's why it all got placed into the minutes because it was an action that a, a session, which is the ruling body of a congregation, would have taken. Okay, all right.
0: Then those of us who research uh, Baptist ancestors, we we find that their record keeping is, is not as as meticulous as the Presbyterians, um, and and their marriage records, for example, would travel with the the minister. So the minister would take that particular record group or type of record with him wherever he went. Did that happen with with, with Pres- or did records generally stay with the, the physical church?
1: That's fascinating. You know, I, I have been in situations in, in which there has been some schism um, in, in the departure of a pastor and records have disappeared. Um, what that is called in the Presbyterian Church is theft. <laughs> um, in the Presbyterian Church, Records belong to the congregation. Um, so even when we have the records of a congregation here at the Presbyterian Historical Society, we do not have ownership of those records. Those records still belong to the congregation. Um, if, the rec- if the congregation no longer is extant, then those records belong to the next governing body above it, which would be the presbytery. Um, so we, don't hold, we do not have ownership for most of those records. They belong to the congregation. Um, so a pre- pastor cannot take those records with him or her um, when he or she leaves the congregation. Okay, all right. And then some particular
0: denominations and churches uh, are, are um, less willing to allow their records to be used for outside researchers. Is, is there any uh, policy for the Presbyterian Church in terms of access to the individual records?
1: We do have um, on some denominational records, particularly personnel records um, or, or legal records, we do have a 50-year uh, window on them um, before they can be seen. Um, but if you're looking for things beyond before that, then they are available. If, 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 or if someone has, has donated or given records here and given permission for them to be looked at, they can all be looked at. Um, but otherwise, we are open to the public. Um, you can come in Monday through Friday, 8.30 to 4.15 to do research. It's free um, to come in and do research, and most everything is available here um, for you to come and ask to look at. We want people okay. to see our records.
0: <laughs> okay. And do we need to make an appointment uh, in
1: advance? No, you don't. What we do encourage is if you know that you're coming in and there's something that you want to look at, we encourage you to um, contact us ahead of time and when um, you put on on uh, your site our um, our information. We do have information there on what to do when you visit, and we have our ref desk uh, email address and the phone number that you can call and say, "Hey, here are some of the do- the, the types of things I'm looking for," and our ref desk archivist can help um, you beforehand to alert you what we may have that will help you, and that can help facilitate your visit when you come.
0: Okay. All right. And the catalog is uh, is right there on the site as well.
1: Yes. Yes, we have both our main catalog, Calvin, which includes a lot of manuscripts and other items. We have a biographical vertical file, which includes pastors and, and other um, staff members, employees in the Presbyterian Church throughout the years. We have a missionary vertical file if you're trying to locate a missionary by name. Um, we have congregational vertical files if you're trying to look up and see if we have congregational, um, congregational collections here, records here in our, in our collection.
0: Okay. And then how about uh, a p- photography? Is that uh, permitted?
1: Yes, you can use, make, use digital, digital photographs without a flash.
0: Those are okay, definitely allowed. Great. Okay. And then do you provide research services for people who can't make it to the historical society?
1: We provide, if, if you're doing genealogical research, we will do genealogical research. It's $30 for an hour, which will include also up to 10 either photocopies or JPJ jpgs or uh, or digital copies and um and if you're looking for more general research we do have names of people that we can suggest as potential researchers that you can hire on your own
0: okay all right and is there anything else about the archives that you'd like to add before i uh, uh, move to the museum
1: I would say um, we have a wonderful, when you come here, just to know that we have more than just Presbyterian history. We also have ecumenical history. We have the National Council of Churches, the Federal Council of Churches, um, the National Sunday School Union, among um, a variety of other um, collections. So it's a really rich, rich, rich uh, repository of of both records and and rare books and and a variety of of items. And we have free parking. I think that's important to know when you come to visit, too. (laughs) Okay, and I did not realize that when I first visited, I parked on the street,
0: and then and then learned that there is a, a parking lot. Um,
1: so, and then, parking. what types <laughs> of things are, are we going to find in the museum? Well, we don't have a large museum. Our lobby area was was designed with uh, with exhibit uh, cases uh, to to show small exhibits. Um, one of the interesting things about us is that we are primarily a paper based collection, so we don't have. Uh, a ton of other items to exhibit, Um, but currently we have our our collection is looking at items that missionaries brought back from the field. For example, the conch shell that um, David Brainerd, who was a um, a Scottish missionary who came here and uh, did did missionary work among the Delaware Indians in the the late uh, 17th century, that he used to call them to worship or the, the flip-flop that Ben Weir, who was a, an educator and a missionary in, uh, in Lebanon who was held hostage for more than almost 470 some days in Beirut, um, the flip-flop he was wearing when he was uh, released from, from hostage. So interesting things like that. We're excited that in, in late April we're gonna open up a new exhibit on those, uh, those darn Presbyterians who helped lead the Presbyterian revolution. Um, kind of in line with the opening of the the new Museum of the American Revolution a few blocks down from us. We're going to look at the ways that the Presbyterians were involved in the American Revolution, and we're excited about that.
0: Oh, that's, I, I'm actually planning to go to the Museum of the American
1: Revolution. So I need to stop at the
0: Presbyterian Historical Society, too.
1: Um, yes. And I
0: want to point out uh, for those people who are listening live, uh, the the broadcast is going to end uh, right on the hour, but you'll be able to get, uh, we're going to go over just a few minutes, but you'll be able to get the end on demand. Uh, so I do want to point that out. Um, then for the Presbyterian records, our are there any other locations that would have Presbyterian records besides the Presbyterian Historical Society?
1: We are the primary repository. There used to be, through the southern stream of the church, before reunion, we had there was a, a southern society at Montreat in North Carolina, which 10 years ago the General Assembly closed down and the records were moved here. They still at Montreat have a museum, um, a wonderful museum there, um, And some church records were transferred to Columbia Theological Seminary in in Decatur, Georgia. Um, But almost all records are here. Okay, all right,
0: okay. All right, and then uh, before I ask the last questions about your own ancestry, is there anything else you would like to add?
1: I just hope that you all take advantage and come and visit. Um, We're located so close to all the historic sites here in Philadelphia. It's a, a wonderful place to come and visit and to do research. Okay. All right. And please
0: do, I I will uh, reiterate that. Please do take advantage. It's a great uh, research uh, place. So, Beth, uh, as I ask all of my guests, what is your own ancestry? You you talked
1: a little bit about about it at the beginning of the show. Yeah, I think I'm I'm mostly, I'm a mutt. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm mostly of German origin, though uh, my family also claims French and Irish and English ancestry. I'm not sure what percentage of what, but I'll claim them all and then when did your germans come to the united states um, i've got them on all sides of my family and um we've we've traced folks as far back as the early 1700s to philadelphia oh wow wow and then how about the, those our, who went for
0: for pe- to pennsylvania area okay uh and and then those who went west the 49ers
1: what what are their origins um mostly german a little irish little French okay my understanding okay and then those are those tales were told by my my journalist grandfather so we we can hope he was doing proper fact-telling but he was also a great storyteller (laughs) okay all right and then is there any particular ancestor who who
0: has uh, stood out to you uh, among uh, this may may not be relevant but is, is there
1: anyone well you know part of that story um I I always loved the romance that the story that my grandfather would tell started with Barbara, who was an Irish school teacher who traveled from Pennsylvania to the south um, on a a steamboat, and the steamboat wrecked, and she fell in love with the steamboat captain, a Kentuckian named Gabriel Hardison. And after they married, they freed his portion of the family slaves and traveled by covered wagon um, to the west. And I always loved that story, the romance of it, but in recent years, um, I've realized that there's the bigger part of the story, which is that in my family history are slaveholders. Um, and, and what I'd really like to be able to do is to move farther back in that family genealogy and learn more about who we are and how my family has participated um, in, in, in this history of slavery in our country. And if possible to learn about those men and women and children that we were responsible for um, denying liberty to. Uh, yes.
0: Yes, very nice. Um, So, Beth, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's been a fascinating show, the the history history of of the Presbyterian Church and uh, the archives at the Presbyterian Historical Society. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I've so enjoyed it. All right. And happy
0: uh, 300th anniversary.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday.
0: Thank you. Uh, This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day.